And welcome back to yet another episode of Los Angeles Online Film Critics Society Weekly Critics Picks. We'll be right back. Welcome to Popcorn Talk, featuring movie discussion, news, and interviews. Popcorn Talk. We talk movies. And... We are live and we are back. I'm Debbie Elias, film critic and normally creator and host of Behind the Lens. But today, I am hosting LAO FCS Weekly Critics Picks. And I am thrilled to have my two partners in crime here with me. My fellow LAO FCS members and critics, Alexander Robinson and Carla Renata. Hello. Hi. Tell everyone who you are, what you do, and where they can find you. All right. Well, I'm Alexander Robinson. I was here last week, but in case you want to find me, I'm on YouTube, The Real Mr. Robinson, Twitter, Real Mr. Underscore Robinson, Instagram, The Real Mr. Robinson, and the Stardust app, Real Mr. Robinson. I love that, Mr. Robinson, <laughs> The Real Mr. Robinson. I am Carla Renata, the curvy film critic. You can find me here at the After Buzz Studios at Black Hollywood Live, their sister station with my show, The Curvy Critic, with Carla Renata every Sunday at 5 p.m. I also host the after show for General Hospital over at After Buzz TV. And I also do the after show for American Princess, a brand new show. Check us out on Sundays. All of that happens on Sundays. Okay, wait a minute. Carla just said the, t- the two magic words here, General Hospital. <laughs> you love General Hospital? I'm- oh, girl, General Hospital is my jam now. Oh, I've been watching it since the very first airing. Stop it. Fifty over fifty six years ago. Yes, indeed. All right, girl, we got to talk. So we we got to talk about we got to talk about <laughs> about this. And again, I'm Debbie Elias, film critic, uh, radio show host of Behind the Lens, which is on AdrenalineRadio.com. Also, you can find my movie reviews and interviews in print and online in the U.S. and abroad, twenty four seven, and of course at BehindTheLensOnline.net. Okay, now. Let's jump into the film picks for this week. All righty. This is a big release weekend, guys. It really is. Huge. Yeah. I, Alexander, we were talking before the show, and you had you weren't, you didn't know. We were all befuddled about how many films are actually opening today. Yeah. I, I thought it was just Phoenix, Pets, and Last Night. But, oh, no. Or late. No, 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 no. But, so let's jump right in so that we can say a little something about all of these little gems. Well, okay, one may not be a gem. But <laughs> we'll, we'll get to that. <laughs> but let's start with, it is, in a word, Bellissimo. Ron Howard's documentary, Pavarotti. Have you guys seen it? I have not. Have you? I have seen it, and I actually spoke to Mr. Howard. So, yes, it was, as someone who comes from a singing background and was trained in opera, I was all over this. Um, I felt like Pavarotti was a love letter to Luciano Pavarotti. It showed his vulnerability. It showed um, his penchant for women and for food, which we're not surprised by that. He's Italian. (laughs) (laughs) But it also gave us a bird's eye view to what he was like in concert. I felt like I was watching a concert in real time, even though it was a documentary, and that speaks to the genius of Ron Howard and his filmmaking. Well, one of the great things about it is the detail and the depth uh, with which Ron tells this story. He tells it with a very objective eye, because as we see, the film is structured like a three-act opera, which is wonderful to begin with, but he builds us up and he gives us background and history and then we find out that everything is not exactly what it seems to be. 
but he never colors anything. He's never jaded in his presentation. And there's a great care in the telling of this story. And I think having so many family members, ex-wives, daughters, daughters, they're all bonding together, talking about this man. Yeah, it was fascinating that he was able to to get both of the ex-wives and and the mistress, so to speak. Yeah, um, it was interesting that he was that they freely discussed him, which goes to um, bring which brings to point the fact that he was very beloved within his family. Yeah. You know what I mean? Not only did we love him across the globe as a tremendously gifted mm-hmm. artist, but he was loved tremendously by his family. Yeah. I also like the through line that Ron Howard used of using the song Nessa Dorma mm-hmm. throughout as a right. plot point for each chapter of right. his life throughout the documentary. Um, and do you remember this? So I remember a while ago when the Grammys happened, Luciano Pavarotti was ailing. I think he might have been sick at the time. Mm-hmm. And Aretha Franklin stepped in for stepped him. Stepped in for him. And sang that song. I was like, now I know she the queen of soul, but, but I didn't know she was an opera diva too. Queen of the opera. Yeah. Um, but and in addition to that particular song, something that, that Ron also does with the structuring is picking the different arias that Pavarotti is most known for. And instead of running them chronologically, he places them with the, the What's moment happening in, the in, story. His, in his life, mm-hmm. how does that song, how does that impact this particular point in his life? Um, just absolutely amazing. And, of course, I've got to give a shout-out to Chris Jenkins, the sound recording mixer, and the fact that Ron and Chris did this Dolby Atmos. You will only find Pavarotti in theaters with Dolby Atmos because they wanted top-of-the-line sound. And the beauty of Atmos is it... It's created bouncing sound off of 64 different fields. So that because of all the archival footage and the things that we have home movies, things are in mono, things are in very old, old, you know, 8 millimeter, and the sound quality is not the best. But rather than totally enhance it and lose the flavor of the time and the place and the moment when things were happening, um, with Dolby, it allows them to really bounce a single sound. It, such as a mono sound, and it will sound rich, as you know from seeing the film. Mm-hmm. It was it was really beautiful. I enjoyed it. I mean, it was so close up, some of the footage up in Pavarotti's face, yeah. that you literally could see how he was using his mouth to, to color and um, project the sound. Mm-hmm. So as a singer, we're often told to put your tongue up against the back row of your teeth mm-hmm. and scoop it in a little bit. And you can totally see, see him doing do it. it. But but he's so gifted that he didn't have to scoop his tongue. He just threw his tongue up against the back of his teeth and you heard those dulcet, beautiful sounds. He he was called the king of the high seas for a reason. Yes. Because he could hit a high C with so much oomph. depth and oomph and, and control the control of his voice was absolutely amazing. Yeah. So that is definitely, see it, see it, see it, see it. You yeah. will love it. Yeah, Imagine Films and CBS Films are producing that. And it's it's a must-see. Another film opening today, The Last Black Man in San Francisco. Yeah. Okay, have we seen it? Have we? I saw this at Sundance. Oh, ooh. Ooh, I know. Fancy me. Yeah, at Sundance. <laughs> I did. I saw it at Sundance, and I spoke to Tashina about it this week, too. Did you see it, Alexander? I did not, unfortunately. Okay. So let me enlighten you, my brother. Enlighten, All right. enlighten, enlighten him. <laughs> my brother and sister. So The Last Black Man in San Francisco starts out 
making you think it's going to be about one thing and then it ends and up being about totally something not, else. Yeah. So it actually ends up being about two things. It ends up being about family and the lineage of family and how important that is within the generations. And it also addresses the subject of gentrification. Yeah. In San Francisco. In San Francisco, to be specific. Yeah. So, yeah, that's pretty much what it's about. And, and it's written and starred by Jimmy Fails, mm-hmm. who plays... Jimmy in the movie. In the movie, and but the per- John John Talbot John, directs. John Talbot directs, but the person that you want to see this film for is Jonathan Majors. Hmm. Oh yes, Jonathan Majors is the reason yes. you want to see this movie. Well, the re- big reason I want to see the movie again, having already seen it, is because of Adam Newport Barrow's cinematography. Because the cinematography, it's rich, it's lush, the color is spectacular, and it really creates a surreal kind of exterior. While inside this old Victorian home, uh, I want to move into this home. That home was beautiful. We had a home. My family had a home like that in St. Louis. Now, did they really own that home? Well, you have to go see the movie to find (laughs) out. Because you know, just saying. Um, The other thing I want. I'm glad that you brought up the cinematography and everything. It was it was really beautiful, and it was almost like a secondary character within mm-hmm. the film because the the, yeah. the way the lens was used actually helps to aid in telling right. the story with that particular film. The other thing that I wanted to address as far as that film was concerned was the fact that Jimmy was a very complex character. Mm-hmm. Very extremely, much so. Extremely, extremely complex. But I also wanted to address the fact that uh, Joe Talbot... He is not for nothing, but this is a white dude directing a movie about a black story. And I'm not going to lie. When I saw this at Sundance, I felt some kind of way about that. But then I found out that Jimmy and Joe grew up together. So he not only tells the story, but he's telling the story of his friend, not just of a black man. Right. And I think the whole issue of family and gentrification and what happens with this family, it is a very universal story. It really is. When you look around, I mean, I grew up in suburban. It's very timely. I grew up in suburban Philadelphia, and I could look anywhere and see this same story unfolding. It's, yeah, it happens. I'm from St. Louis, Missouri, and it happened there too. I mean, even with the house that I spoke of just a few seconds ago that my family owned owned in St. Louis, it happened in that area too. Mm-hmm. But because of the area where our family home was, it was a historical area, so it became a historical right. landmark. Right. Well. Let us move along here. And I'm going to... Carla and Alexander haven't seen this one. No, but very few people have. It's open today. It's called Wish Man. I have to give a shout-out to this film. It is the story of Frank Shankwitz. He's the founder of the Make-A-Wish Foundation. And seeing how the foundation came to be, his life that led him to this, it's a narrative feature. The cast is to die for. Um, you've got Andrew, Andrew Steele. Thank you, Australia. Um, but this is Andrew's first North American film. It will not be his last. Um, we have something besides Bryn Foster and, uh, the Hemsworth now from Australia that, that we love. Um, but it also, Faye Masterson, Kirby Bliss Stanton, Frank Willie, Carrie Scott, Bruce Davison, Dale Dickey, and a brilliant cameo segment a tribute to Chips because Frank Shankwitz was a CHP officer in Prescott, Arizona. <laughs> That's hilarious. With Robert Pine and Larry Wilcox. Wow. It is a beautiful, beautiful film. Bring tissues, but see it. Um, How about I actually know where Prescott, Arizona is? I know where it is, too. That's hilarious. <laughs> <laughs> I just had to say that. You said Prescott, Arizona. I was like, uh-uh. 
Yep. Well, let's talk. Goose is falling. Goose is not cooperating here. Goose is wait, hoping for it to be Tuesday when Captain <laughs> Marvel comes out on DVD Blu-ray. Um, but let's jump into the middle of the pack here with Dark Phoenix. Mm, Alexander. This, this, this one I did see. And I saw it too. Sad days. Sad days. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Thank you, Ryan. Thank you. Um, Ryan! Where do I begin with this? I mean, first of all, the press screening was probably the most interesting part about seeing the movie altogether, because um, there were technical difficulties with the actual theater. I was at that screening. You were? Yes. Oh, that was not oh. cute. Yeah, they uh, like right before the film's finale, or during the middle. Ten minutes of it, before the end, really. Yeah, the house lights went up, the, theater, the movie stopped, and um, we had to wait about... 30 minutes before they set it back up and everyone who was in the uh, overflow theater just went into the main theater because they had finished it uh, and we just sat there for the last 10 minutes and it was not worth it at all. <laughs> Guys, how... Mm. How do you really feel about that, Alexander? I don't quite think I grasped the feeling from that. Uh, well, I, all I can say I mean, is it, this was a sign from the movie gods because, look, I paid sixteen. I couldn't make it to the press screen to the press screening. I paid sixteen twenty-five to see this at ten fifty-five last night. Oh. I want my sixteen twenty-five back. Yeah, when I say like guys, it's not towards AMC because sometimes these things right. are out of their control. I, we all know this kind of stuff happens. I'm when I say guys, I mean more like the people who made this movie. Like this was Simon Kinberg's second attempt to do the Dark Phoenix storyline after he wrote X Men Last Stand, and he still screwed it up. You cannot do Dark Phoenix this early in this second series because this is the seventh X Men movie overall. If it had the same cast, continuing storyline, okay, makes sense. But this is the fourth movie in this prequel reboot series. The second one with Sophie Turner is Jean Grey, who we barely knew in Apocalypse. So you can't rush this storyline. Uh, it's just a mess overall. There, Jessica Chastain is like she is on another level of bad. But I don't, <laughs> I don't blame her for this. Like, because her character didn't even have a name, and she just kind of yeah, she pops did. in. She did. She did have a name. It was Vuk. Vuk. Okay. V U K. V U K. Okay, that that escaped me then. <laughs> um, uh, they never called. I, and I understand why it escaped you because they never really called her by her name. Oh. They mentioned Vuk one time right before you saw her, and that was kind of it. So it's understandable oh, that wow. you thought she didn't have a name, but she did. Okay. Okay. Thank you for clearing that. <laughs> no problem. That, that is why I'm here, honey. That, that's that. That's it. But yeah. So I and of course. This comes on the heel. This winds up a franchise, wraps it up. Uh, yeah, it doesn't compare with Avengers Endgame. That's how you wrap up. Well, that's a that, franchise. This is not how you do it. And then on the heels of Captain Marvel, to see, yeah, this Jean Grey done so wrong. Yeah, um, like I will say this. It like I know people might not agree with me, but. Captain Marvel, like, not just the character, but the movie, had more personality than this did. Like, because both movies set in the 90s, Captain Marvel embraces the 90s, you feel like you're in the 90s in that movie. Dark Phoenix, outside of the fact that James McAvoy and Michael Fassbender have not aged in 30 years, um, you never feel like it's the 90s at all. So this just had no sense of style whatsoever, and... 
I'm, bu- I'm like I've never been so sad about a movie this bad in a while. <laughs> like I don't even have any anger towards it. I'm just depressed almost. <laughs> okay, so let me let me just give a little rebuttal to some of what you said. I love the fact that that there were some strong female characters in the film. We had Jessica Chastain as Vuk. We had Alexandra Ship as a young storm, and we had Sophie Turner playing um, Jean. This is the thing. They were kicking butt and taking names. The story was a little disjointed in how... Because when it starts off, you think it's going to go a certain way. And again, it goes in a direction that you're not anticipating. But what I did appreciate about the film is that it brings... there was some Somewhere along the line, somebody said something about um, people fearing fearing what they don't understand. And that's oftentimes... As a person of color in this country... That's something that oftentimes is associated with people that are different, whether you're a person mm-hmm. of color, whether you're disabled, whatever your situation may be. If you are not white in America and you're deemed as different, then that is something that people fear and they don't understand it and they treat you treat you um, adversely as a result of it, i.e. our president and how he's treating immigrants, right? right. So mm-hmm. with the mutants in the film, I could see that I could see that very clearly in this film. I had not seen a single X-Men film before this. So really? I was no, not a one. So I was all about the Avengers. So okay. <laughs> so for me for this to be my introduction to it, I could see its weaknesses, I could see its strengths. I love the the dialogue. I love at one point there was dialogue that said something, why are the women always saving the men? That they should really be called X-Women instead of X-Men. Like I love yeah. that. I thought that was funny. I I loved the the battle scenes and stuff, especially the ones in the subway leading to them trying to get Gene. But what I really what I really was like mm, was the fact that when Gene became I want to say extraterrestrial for lack of a better word, it was very reminiscent of Captain Marvel. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when, like she were, got, when her phoenix powers really yeah when the yeah. sonar flares or whatever it was that she took infused on infused her body. Yeah, yes. that was very reminiscent. That felt very Captain Marvelish mm-hmm. to me, and in that respect, it kind of took me out of it. Not to mention the fact that, like Alexander said, we were at a screening where the emergency lights went on. They shut the the movie was shut down, and it kind of took you mm. out of the the enjoyment of that world. So that's all I have to say about that. Well, I still want my sixteen twenty five. Um, Moving on to something much lighter and much more fun. How about The Secret Life of Pets 2? Yes! Thank you, Look! I saw the first one. I haven't seen the second one yet. Look, But anything with talking dogs, I'm kind of all over it. Anything, you got Harrison Ford voicing... Uh, a herding she a herding Australian sheep uh, sheep dog. What yeah. is it with you and Australians? You are loving yourself some Australian. <laughs> today, you? today's like Australia Day. Okay, <laughs> today's Australia Day. Um, but Rooster is my favorite my favorite new character, and I am in love with Captain Snowball's performance in this film. Kevin Hart <laughs> knocks it out of the park. But as Alexander pointed out, somebody else surprised both you and me, and did yes. not annoy us. Yes, and that would be Tiffany Haddish because. I like Tiffany Haddish in um, like her other comedic stuff, but sometimes her movie roles are eh, hit or miss. And I was kind of expecting her to be annoying in this movie. She wasn't. Like I found her like maybe it's because of the design of the character she voices Daisy, but like it fit the character mm-hmm. design. Really uh, did. She was funny. She was more restrained than I thought Kevin Hart was. Who honestly I. Didn't like in the first Secret Life of Pets, and I didn't like in this one. 
Um, Harrison Ford was the best part of the movies you've mentioned. Um, I think that's the first time he's ever done an animated movie, unless you uh, want to count the Star Wars Holiday Special. No, we don't count that. No, we don't. Uh, <laughs> but yeah, it just it fits so perfectly, and uh, everything he says is funny. Yeah, like I mean, outside of that though. I just kind of I liked it better than the first one because they weren't doing Toy Story two like the first one did Toy right. Story but with pets. But at the same time, I just didn't feel anything. Illumination just doesn't really. It, it didn't illuminate. There you go. Uh, but I mean, like for me, <laughs> they just don't aim high when it comes to animated movies. Well, I just wish they try to go for the higher fruit more. Well, one of the, the one of the great things about Secret Life of Pets too, it is entertaining. It is fun. Um, it may be forgettable, except for Harrison Ford voicing Rooster, of course. Yeah. Um, but it is a family film. We have nothing else opening this week, and you know, LA Unified School District. They're out of school now. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they are. So most schools are around the country. So you need something for the kids to see. They can see this. Mm-hmm. No problem. So now let's go to the LA Online Film Critic Society Critic Pick of the Week. It is Late Night. Yay. We love Late Night. We love Late Night. Razor Sharp, <laughs> Rapier Performance by Emma Thompson. I think this is the funniest she's ever been. Um, I love this film. Yeah, it was it was a really great film for a variety of reasons. It's directed by Nisha Ganatra, who's Indian. It's written, co-written rather, by Mindy Kaling, who's also mm. Indian. There's a lot of women associated with the production value of mm-hmm. this particular film, so I love that. I love the fact that the late night host is a woman. I love the fact that she is in her 50s and that that seems to be a problem in late night television which is hilarious to me because almost all of the men are, in real life that do late night television are in their 50s all of them or just shy of or just shy yeah. of like it, there might be two Jimmy Fallon and Seth Meyers yeah. may not be in their 50s or Seth uh, not Seth um, James Corden mm-hmm. but the rest of them come on so I, you know what I mean <laughs> so but what the thing that really struck me with this one is there's a line that she uses as her moniker. All late night talk show hosts have a moniker that they sign in and out with, right? Jimmy Kimmel's has something to do with Matt Damon. And this one, Emma Thompson's character, Catherine, says, have I earned the privilege of your time? And it's really interesting to me that 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 is what she has chosen as her moniker to sign out. Why does she have to say that? Because you don't hear any. You don't hear any man have a right. sign off saying, "Have I earned the privilege right. of your time?" They don't, they don't sign off with a question. Exactly. So the fact that she does that was very interesting yeah. to me. And I had a conversation with the director Nisha Ganatra about it, and I said, "Why? Why that sign off?" And she said, "But don't we all, as women, ask for the privilege of time, always in every lane that we're in?" I'm like, "Ooh, I like that." But so yeah, I I love that. I love that film for a variety of reasons. I hope it does really well. I, I, and, and your thoughts on it, Alexander? Uh, they are non-existent because I unfortunately did not see the movie. <laughs> see, you have to understand, Alexander was a last-minute oh. fill-in this morning, people. Thanks, he, thanks for the the petty noise, Ryan. He he <laughs> ba- he bailed the show out this morning so that we can always maintain. You know, you can have a two to one. You know, we can have a quorum on something here. Mm-hmm. So Alexander was he very graciously volunteered and filled in today. So I think he deserves a cheer for that, Ryan. Yay! 
Well, thank, thank you. you. I, did, I did not know this, so thanks yeah. for popping in. Well, no problem. You know, one of the great telling things about Late Night that I love, Mitchell Travers' costume design, the way he dressed, Emma Thompson in particular, the shoes, the earrings, long earrings, the structured, razor-sharp, shoulder-padded blazers, but as her character changes in the film, the blouses get looser. They turn into a chiffon. Um, really nice elements that impact the character and the development of the character. Agreed. And I would be remiss not... i got to mention the guys in the film. Got to mention the guys. you got Hugh Dancy, John Lithgow, who we'll see in anything. <laughs> yeah. And I was so excited to see Max Casella in this oh, film. yeah. To yeah. see Max. It's always nice to see, you know, one of our old TV favorites pop up uh, today on a film. Yeah. So, that is the LAOFCS Critics Pick of the Week. And this, this was a tough week because of Pavarotti, because of Secret Life of Pets, because of Late Night. There's good stuff. And in addition to the films we've talked about, there's also another little indie gem, Vault, Mafia, True Story, 1975, Rhode Island. It's fun. And every wise guy you've seen in films, you're going to see in this movie. And then Framing John DeLorean. It is a documentary. Oh, I did see that. Oh, my. Is Alec... You all think Alec Baldwin does an amazing job as Trump, and of course now he said he's going to stop doing Trump on SNL. Where do you see him in dramatizations as John DeLorean? You know, this is the thing about that. I kind of feel differently than you on that one. I wasn't... It felt very Trumpish to me. It, his his reenactments as John DeLorean felt yeah, but very Trumpish John DeLorean was very Trumpish. He didn't. Well, I don't, mm, I, don't with, I don't agree with that either. So we're going to agree to disagree. We'll on agree this to one. disagree yeah. on that. All right. So moving along, our illustrious president had given us a task of talking about films that we like that are female-led films, be it uh, cast in front of the camera or behind the camera. And uh, I dug into my into my heart for. <laughs> And and my old classic catalog. And this one's for you, Ryan. This is for our producer, Ryan. 1939, The Women. Oh, I love that Every movie. female under contract at MGM, but for Lassie, is in <laughs> that film. No, no joke. It is, it no, is I know. directed by George Cukor. You've got everybody. I mean, it's hilarious. It's biting. It's sharp. Jungle Red. Any classic film fan out there knows what Jungle Red is. Mm-hmm. And you, Little Miss, just having done an intro on TCM with Ben Mankiewicz over the weekend. Thank you. Uh, for High Society. Yes. You should know what Jungle Red is. Yes, I do. But uh, <laughs> it is it is a film that, if you haven't seen it, it came out of one of the most fertile years in the history of Hollywood. 1939, Gone with the Wind, Wizard of Oz, The Women. Hmm, and they're all out of MGM. <laughs> Okay. Hmm, interesting. Interesting. <laughs> but it's based on a story by Claire Booth Luce. It was played on the stage forever. It was remade uh, twice. Uh, and screenplay was actually F. Scott Fitzgerald was one of the of the writers of the screenplay for it. Oh, wow. That's interesting. But uh, I love that film. My other one is First Wives Club. Oh, I like have that one, Have you seen too. that, Alexander? I have not. <laughs> You're going to be hearing that a lot from me today. I'm, I'm, I, you know, I'm going to open up my entire 7,000-plus library to you so you can just borrow things and okay. see them. First Wives Club, I mean, directed by Hugh Wilson. And Hugh Wilson, 
I mean, we know him best for as being the creator of WKRP in Cincinnati for television. Mm-hmm. But, I mean, First Wives Club, it holds up to this day. Bette Midler, Goldie Hawn, Diane Keaton, all three are still dazzling us. Yes. Bette Midler dazzling on Twitter. Oh, wow. Uh, that was a mess. <laughs> oh, really? Ooh, that but, was a hot mess. I mean, both of these films, they stand the test of time. They speak to women, women's issues, women women's relationships with each other mm-hmm. and some of the cutthroat methods that they will go to to succeed and to get what they want. Okay. Um, what about you? What, what? Okay, so one of my all-time new favorite um, female-led films is Girls Trip that came out last, I think oh. it was last year. That film is so funny. <laughs> it's hella funny. It's got Tiffany Haddish, Jada Pinkett, Queen Latifah, um, Oh, God, I can't remember the uh, Regina Hall. Yeah, Regina mm-hmm. Hall, who just won the New York Film Critics, Critics Award. Award. The first time an African-American woman has ever won the Best Actress Award at that that particular um, critic circle situation. But I love that movie. It was gut bucket. It was gut bucket funny. It was. <laughs> it was gut. But it was gut bucket giggle funny. But I love that movie. I also loved. One of my other favorite female films is a film called Fast Color that starred uh, Lorraine Toussaint and Gugu Mbatha-Ra. Mm-hmm. And I like it because we see black women in that film in a way we have never seen them before. They are kind of like superheroes with, spe- with very special powers of being able to move things with telekinesis type of power. Mm-hmm. And I loved it for that reason. It didn't do very well at the box office because it kind of got overshadowed by some other things. But it's a really, really good film. It's directed by a woman of color. It's starring women of color. The premise of the the um, film is centered around women of color. And I love David Strahan because he's in it too. He plays Gugu Mbatha-Raw's dad. And it's just a really wonderful, unexpectedly joyful film. Mm-hmm. You mm-hmm. know, joyful in the way you perceive it when you watch it, not in its content. Mm-hmm. So. Now, what about for you, Alexander? Any female-led or, or directed films? That you uh, like? Yeah, I have a couple, and they're probably going to be the most mainstream picks I could list out. Nothing uh, wrong with mainstream. All right. Uh, well, the first one I have is Spy. Uh, with Melissa McCarthy, um, Rose Byrne, Jude Law, Jason Statham. And this one was like, this was actually, Spy was the very first movie I went to a press screening for ever since I started getting into this, I guess, business. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was such a surprise for me because this might be the point where I get thrown out of the studio for this, but I did not like Bridesmaids. Like, I just didn't think it was funny. Uh, Heat with Sandra Bullock and Melissa McCarthy was just kind of like, eh, Sandra Bullock's funny, but the rest of the movie's not so much. Spy surprised me in how much they put effort into, like, making it feel like a real spy film, but Mm -hmm. played it for laughs. Mm -hmm. Jason Statham just plays himself like he does in every other movie, but he's hilarious. (laughs) Melissa McCarthy just nails everything, whether it's the comedy, the action... And they're just so... It's not afraid to be gory. Like, there are some moments in there that just really took me back in terms of... They did that for a comedy. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot lot of fun. I I agree with you. I love that film. For more than Jason Statham. (laughs) Um, You know, what other other Uh, female films? Well, the second one I have is uh, Wonder Woman. And, uh, like, I'll start with the very first thing I said on Twitter as soon as the movie came out. If it takes... If it takes guys three movies to 
try to get something right and they can't do it, send in a woman and she'll do it in one. And <laughs> That's I'm, true. Well, and I'm more talking about Patty Jenkins. And, like, she absolutely nailed this movie. Gal Gadot is... Like, perfect as Diana Prince, a.k.a. Wonder Woman. It does borrow so many elements from both Thor and Captain America, the first Avenger, but it does them very well. The uh, the No Man's Land sequence is expertly done. Mm-hmm. And, like, this is the first Wonder Woman movie in theaters, and they are pulling this off 100%. Yeah. And, uh, like, it has heart, it has emotion, they feel like they're... You feel like they're in real places and not just, like, a green screen set. Mm -hmm. My big issue with the movie is that um, I don't like the last 15 minutes because it's just... It felt... That's where the fakeness came in. It just was, like, too CG heavy. But outside of that, um, it's an excellent and... Maybe with it's I can't decide between this or Shazam which of the DCEU movies are the best. And um, it's good that I say, like, well, let me start that again. Because um, Ryan has the yeah, I got, poster. I got, I got the new poster up that just came out this week. Yes. I love that. Yeah, yeah I saw yes. that on Twitter. And yeah. I said to... It's gorgeous. It is beautiful. It's very kaleidoscopish. And I, I put out a tweet to Patty Jenkins. I was like, um, so I'm going to need this in a t-shirt. Oh, to yeah. where when I interview you this time next year, because she says this is coming out this time next year. So I was like, yeah. So I'm going to need that on a t-shirt yeah. when we I interview you and Gal Gadot yeah. this we time next this. year. Yeah, that is a gorgeous oh, poster. I wanted yeah. to say, I wanted to address two things before we move on real quick. So you mentioned Melissa McCarthy. I saw an interview that Melissa McCarthy did with Ellen where she talked about how people are always poo-pooing all over her films. In particular, this one critic, a male critic, said that she was fat, she was unattractive, and said some really not-so-stellar things about her. She happened to run into him at an event or a a screening or something, and they had a whole conversation about it, and she literally just tried to get him to understand the fact that, you know, when you say things that are negative or when you say things that are not stellar about a woman that's making film, that some little girl that's growing up that has that aspiration, it's going to affect her dream, whether you realize it or not. Mm -hmm. And she was like, what do you think your daughter would say if you said this to them. He said, but I would never. She said, exactly. And that's why you shouldn't. The other thing I want to mention real quick is If Beale Street Could Talk is another female-led film. Yeah, that, I, that was one of my favorite, 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 favorite films that was directed by Barry Jenkins, who also did Moonlight, in which Regina King won the Oscar for. But the women in that film were strong. They were fierce. It was really wonderful. Kiki Lane, Regina King, Ingenue Ellis. It was just a really stellar cast of women in that film. Mm. You know, I would, I would love if we could go back in time and pull out a lot of these women uh, from 1939, from the women, pull out a Joan Crawford, pull out a Norma Shear, you know, bring in a Catherine Hepburn and Betty Davis and pair them up with some of the women out there oh, today. Oh, wouldn't that be wonderful? That would that be something interesting would be to watch. Amazing. Yeah, it would. So, any creative uh, video <laughs> people out there, you know, get your little magic wands going. Um, I want to see somebody do a mashup of, of something like that. Yeah, that would be great. So before we run out of time today, we got about five minutes left. Big event happening in Los Angeles in the film world um, for in the world of independent film. Dances with Films Film Festival is back for its 22nd year. Wow. That in and of itself is, is, a, miracle is a miracle in L.A. for a film festival. You know, after 26 years or so, we just lost L.A. Film Festival. And that was one of my favorites. Mm. I was so that was, sad. That was my baby. I covered every single one. Me too. Well, not all of them, oh, but I, most of the films I was there, there I from day one. I love that festival. So that broke my heart. 
that broke my heart, and I still have not forgiven Josh Welch, the president of Film Independent, (laughs) for that decision. Uh, But we still have Dances with Films, and Dances with Films truly celebrates the indie film, whereas L.A. Film Festival and even Toronto, Sundance, TIFF, you're going to see bigger-name stars in the films. You may not see huge-name stars in these films and Dances with Films, for the most part, but you're going to see some amazing films. Festival runs from Thursday the 13th through the 23rd. It's at the Man's Chinese Six Complex, right there in the heart of Hollywood. But what is kicking off this year's festival, and this is a very big deal, is a film called Appleseed. There are still tickets available for opening night. Go get your ticket now to see Appleseed. It stars Rance Howard, Ron's dad, in his very first feature role, Mm. and it is his Mm. last feature. Um, and adding adding a little more a little more to the tissue count, Clint Howard is in the film and plays Rance's son. Mm. It is the only time wow. they have ever played father son on a screen. screen. Mm. And uh, I spoke with Ron about it because he had already the whole family had seen the film, mm-hmm. not the final cut, but about fifteen minutes before uh, what what it is currently. Mm-hmm. And I spoke with Clint over the weekend for, mm. for two hours. Wow. Um, and the love that these boys have for their father and the pride they have with his work in this film. And I got to tell you, it is the best thing Rance has ever done. It is unforgettable. It's from writer-director Michael Worth. Michael also co-stars opposite Rance in the film. It's see it, see it, see it. Get your tickets for DWF and see it. Oh, I I will want. I hadn't even thought about checking that out, but now you kind of made me want to see it. And you know, there are some other great films I've already seen that are going to be at the festival, blowing up right now. The Land, Driven. That's okay. It's creepy. I love it. (laughs) Ninety feet from home. Got to see it. That's all. Say, would you like to try again? I haven't seen that one yet. I started it and I had to stop because mm-hmm. I had to run. So I got to finish that one. Mm-hmm. But these are just some of the titles that are going to be popping up. Okay. All right. And well, all right. Thank you, Miss Debbie. Well, thank you. So quickly before we go, where can everybody find you, Carla? You can find me across all social media platforms at the Curvy Critic. And again, you can find me on Sundays at Black Hollywood Live doing the Curvy Critic with Carla Renata at 5 p.m., 6 p.m. the General Hospital After Show at Afterbus TV, and at 7 p.m. or 8 o'clock p.m. I think we are doing that American Princess After Show at Afterbus TV. And all Alexander, right. YouTube and Instagram, the Real Mr. Robinson, Twitter at Real Mr underscore Robinson and the Stardust app Real Mr. Robinson. And you can find me behind the lens online.net on Twitter, Movie Shark D or BTL Radio Show on Facebook, W Lynn Elias or Behind the Lens on YouTube. Same thing. But that is all the time we have today. It has been a thrill to be here again with all of you and to have both of you here. Yay! And to be here. We finally got to do something together, Carl. I know, right? Yay! It's been ages. <laughs> And, of course, Alexander for saving us. Yay. No problem. Yay. (laughs) So, I don't know what we have scheduled for next week, but be back next Friday at 11 for another L.A. Online Film Critics Society Weekly Critics Picks. From producers Maria Menounos, Kevin Undergaro, and the entire Popcorn Talk Network, we would like to thank you for tuning in. For questions or comments, be sure to visit popcorntalk.com. 
I'm Sir Richard Wentworth, and this has been a presentation of the Popcorn Talk Network. The views expressed herein are those of the hosts only and do not necessarily reflect the views of AfterBuzz TV or its owners or principals.